I'm Heather McElhatton, and this is A Beautiful World. And this week, we talk to Sarah Parkak. She's a professor of anthropology at the University of Alabama at Birmingham. She's a National Geographic explorer and a TED Prize winner. And she's also a space archaeologist. She saves ancient sites all over the world using satellite images and technology from space. So I was a, I was a child of, of, the, uh, of the 80s and when VHS came out um, in the kind of very early 80s, we, uh, we got one. And of course, one of my favorite movies um, was the first Indiana Jones movie that was on rotation with um, the Princess Bride and Star Wars. Um, and the dark crystal. And I, now that I'm a, a mom, I completely understand having a child that only wants to watch four movies. I think my, my son will grow up to be a minion, but anyway, um, you know, obviously watching that movie again and again, uh, it, it, it made, um, a, a big impact on me. I, I fell in love with the idea of archaeology and discovery. And obviously, you know, it's, it's, it's fake. And obviously the movie's problematic for a lot of other reasons that I couldn't have possibly understood when I was five years old. Um, but that inspired me to, to, or at least kicked off a lot of my interest in Egypt. And then my grandfather, uh, Harold Young, was a forestry professor at the University of Maine in Orono and was one of the pioneers in using aerial photographs um, and sort of identifying and measuring and quantifying areas of forest for paper production. Um, he was actually an early environmentalist. And so I grew up hearing my grandfather talk about using this quote unquote technology. Um, he never really got into satellites. He retired before they became mainstream, but um, he wrote a lot of very inf influential papers in the, in the sort of late forties, fifties and sixties. And so he's the reason I took my first um, remote sensing course as an undergraduate at Yale because I wondered, well, gosh, you know, this is what my grandfather did. Um, I wonder what applications it might have to archaeology. And that's really what got me started. I just love this idea of you of looking at aerial images with your with your grandfather. And I think it, it's all about perspective. I mean, he's, you know, realizing that that what he does can be looked at from many different angles. You know, it's, it's funny re reading reading his articles because now every, everything's on online and I've been able to find um, a bunch of his early articles um, from the 50s when he's advocating for this new technology and he taught courses at the University of Maine, sort of training young students and how to how to use this new technology and taking them out into the field. Um, and, you know, it's kind of, it's, it's amazing. Um, I, you know, I didn't, I didn't find some of this writing until recently. And it's almost, I sort of feel guilty. It's almost like I partly plagiarized my grandfather's writing from 75 years ago or 70 years ago. Like it, we have very similar writing styles. I, I must be subconscious. Um, and, uh, and, and our writing is just what we're saying about the technology 70 years apart is, is, um, is quite similar. So it's, I found it very sort of sentimental and moving and definitely nearly burst into tears when I started reading some of his work. I mean, that's just incredible. We all have dreams as children, you know, but I think I feel like you more than most people I speak with, you know, have fo followed a single vision, a single source vision, you know, all the way. <laughs> the goal was to go to Yale and study history or political science and then come come home to Maine and run for office. Uh, but, uh, you know, I 
ended up in the same residential college as this eminent Egyptologist and started, uh, wouldn't it be fun to take some classes on, on Egypt and archaeology? I've always been interested in, well, I can, and they satisfy kind of core requirements. Um, and then one thing led to another. Um, and I was just, I was just very, very lucky. I, I didn't apply to Yale, um, knowing that it had such a strong Egyptology program. Um, one of the reasons I went there was to play on their, their varsity soccer team, obviously for the academics as well. So I, I've just been, I've been very, very lucky in my career with the people I've gotten to, to work with and the opportunities that, that I've had. Now, and you're, you're not e Egyptian. You don't have any uh, Egyptian <laughs> heritage. So what I, was I, it yeah. that grabbed you? What was it that spoke to you? What song did you hear in your head that you, that you responded to? You know, m most Egyptologists will, will tell you the same thing, um, that at a very, very young age, probably four or five, we started talking about Egypt and Egyptology and we became interested. Um, and I, I was probably interested before I saw the indie movie. Um, you know, maybe it was partly National Geographic. Um, maybe it was seeing ads for the Tink King Tut exhibit, you know, when it came through the U.S. Uh, but it just it just grabbed me in an incredibly visceral way. Um, and, you know, in, in the story I tell in my book, when when I lost my first tooth, the, the tooth fairy brought me a book on ancient Egypt that was actually really, really good. Um, you know, and our, our son has just started losing teeth. He's six. So it had to be when I was about five or six years old. Um, so yeah, I've just, I've been talking about it. Or I, I guess I'd been talking about it for a while and my mom thought it was really odd. You know, this is pre, way pre-internet, pre-cable. Um, in Bangor, there weren't, you know, there weren't any readily accessible Egyptian collections. It's not like I went to Boston to see the Egyptian collection at the Museum of Fine Arts. So there was really no rhyme or reason for it. It just, it just called to me. I must have seen something and I can only think that it had to be a, a National Geographic cover. That Tooth Fairy story is just the best. So, all right. So you're in, so you're in school and you're taking these um, side classes, Egyptology, but then what, so, and then the, the remote sensing class sounds like that was triggered by your grandfather. That was like, Hey, wait a minute. I remember this. Yeah, and, and you know, actually, it's funny, it, it, it was almost an afterthought. So, you know, I, I started taking classes my first year and then by my second year, I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm hooked. And I declared a double major in, in archeology span and near Eastern languages and civilizations concentrating in, in Egyptology. Um, so I was going along merrily. And then I, I, I didn't even know that Yale had this remote sensing class. Um, and yeah, I somehow saw an ad for it in a building. Um, but it was the second semester of my senior year. So a, a semester when most of my classmates were, were not focused on taking really difficult new classes. Most of them were writing their senior theses and having way too much fun. Um, and so I, I just thought, wouldn't this be, wouldn't this be fun? Wouldn't this be a neat thing to, to try? Um, and I, it was the best decision I could have possibly made, even though the class, uh, was incredibly difficult. So what is a space archeologist? So it's a fun term and I should, I should back up and say first, I did not come up with this term NASA did. This is not some imaginary thing. NASA actually had for, for years, a space archeology span program where they funded people to do the work I do. So it is, uh, someone who uses satellite imagery to, uh, map and model 
um, ancient landscapes. So using different parts of the light spectrum to, um, to interpret the satellite imagery and using computer algorithms, you're, you're developing, um, techniques to pull out very subtle details in the landscape that you might not otherwise be able to see. And you're finding these sites or features. And then you go out on the ground and you can survey or excavate them. So how do you find new sites? Like, how do you find new places to even go look? So um, in archaeology, we go from the known to the unknown. So um, you may, you know, if you, you may be interested in a particular area. Obviously, I'm an Egyptologist that's because I'm interested in Egypt. That's where I work. That's where I started. And I had a really good sense from previous archaeological work of the landscapes where I was working. So, um, for example, I started off by doing my work in the Northeast Egyptian Delta. And the first thing you do um, when you're doing any kind of survey or mapping work is you, you spend a lot of time in the library. That's what most archaeology is. And you look at old maps, old surveys, um, previous reports, what information is known, and you start building up a database of all the sites and all the information that's in a particular area. And then you look at that information and you go, okay, well, these are these sites and this is what they look like. And this, these are their sites and shapes and or sizes and shapes. And this is what they look like visually on satellite imagery. And once you have a really good sense of the full range of sites that you might um, encounter, then you can start processing the imagery and determining what imagery you need and what techniques might work. So it's, it's a lengthy process. Um, people, think that I just sort of wave a wand like Harry Potter and, and make sites appear, but, but it's, um, it's, it's a science. Science takes a lot of time. How do you apply this science or these algorithms to the sites? Sure. So first, first what you do is you have to see what remote sensing techniques will work to pick up the chemical signatures of the sites that are already known. So everything on the surface of the planet has its own chemical signature. I mean, think of, think of how each person writes their name. Everybody writes their name differently. Well, the same thing kind of applies to um, everything on the Earth's surface. So whether you're a sand or a soil or a type of vegetation, um, you're going to look a little bit different in parts of the light spectrum that we can't see with our human eyes. So almost think of it like a, like a space-based x-ray where you're seeing things that are otherwise invisible or hidden to us on the ground. And so what you then do you're applying all these techniques and you're seeing what, what, what's pulling features of interest out of sites that are known where you're like, okay, I know there's a, a wall here that was excavated 50 years ago. It's gotten covered up. Okay. That technique works. Let's try and see what else might work. Oh my gosh, there are all these other walls that are showing up. Okay. That technique is useful. So then once you've identified this, this very specific chemical signature of an archaeological site, you then apply these, these pro, these, these techniques, these algorithms, um, that make other features pop out as well. That so they you know if it has the same signature, it's probably a site. So then you start creating a database of all the sites and features that are in a particular area um, for for you to go out. So you're collecting GPS information, you're putting points on a map, and then you're getting it ready for when you go out into the field to confirm whether or not it's a site. There's so many amazing discoveries in your book. Let's just touch on one or two of them. And sure. of course, I, I want to hear the story of, of Tanis because of the Raiders of the Lost Ark connection. Sure. But tell, tell me about that story. So Tanis was Egypt's capital um, about 3,000 years ago. 
so yes, it's talked about in Indiana Jones as a major site, and yes, it did exist. It was a massive site. It was Egypt's capital, right at the end of the the New Kingdom. So think kind of King Tot, lots of gold, lots of imperialism, lots of foreign expeditions. It's an incredibly wealthy time. So moving from the end of the Old Kingdom into what's called the Third Intermediate Period, dynasties 21 and 22, and it was Egypt's capital for 400 years. It's kind of hard for us in in the U.S. get our head around it because. We, we as a nation are, are not 400 years old. Um, this is a massive, massive city. There would have been tens of thousands of people that would have lived there. There would have been palaces and large administrative complexes. Um, this would have been, a, think of like a combined Washington, D.C., L.A., New York, all rolled into one. This is a massive, massive center for art, for culture, for administration, for diplomacy, for religion. Um, and so, you know, f sort of flash forward 3,000 years and uh, archaeologists have been working at the site for, for over 100 years, but they've mainly excavated its temples. We know virtually nothing about this massive and really important capital um, that existed for 400 years. It's just not been an interest of the, the, the French teams that have been working there. So uh, I knew there was a city because of course there was a city and I knew a lot of the site hadn't been mapped. So we got this very high resolution satellite imagery. Um, so imagery with a resolution of 0.5 meters. So that's a foot and a half. Um, so kind of like two iPads put together. Um, when you zoom in and zoom in and zoom in, each pixel is about the size of, I guess it's kind of two, two to four iPads, one next to the other. And uh, so we got the data, I analyzed it, I processed it, because you can see some walls very clearly visually. Uh, and this was eight, nine years ago, and the imagery has gotten a lot better since then. And we proce processed the imagery, and this whole map of the city just popped out. Uh, it was extraordinary. You could see all these buildings, you could see potential palaces, you could see roads. And it wasn't like a, a scientific blob test where the scientist is telling you, trust me, I know. Uh, it, it's a really, really, really clear map. In fact, there's a, an, a, a full page image in the center of my book where you can see for yourself. And it's really, really clear. I always get gasps when I show that information to um, audiences just because it's, it's obvious. It's the plan of a city. So that's really what, How did uh, what you we feel found. When you first, when that image popped up, what happened inside your body? It was like, what? At first I didn't believe it because it was so crisp and so clear. Um, and I remember coming home and, and showing my husband, Greg, who's also an Egyptologist. We work, we collaborate and work together. And he was pretty excited um, just because it's, it's such a massive city. And compared to all the other capitals, um, that have been excavated and worked on in Egypt, comparatively, we knew very, very little. So it fills a massive gap uh, of, of knowledge within the field of Egyptian archaeology. Did you actually, you know, boots on the ground? Did you go to the site? Yes. So we were very lucky. Um, uh, a, uh, a The French team that had been um, working there uh, for many, many years had agreed to a collaboration and uh, this lovely gentleman named Philippe Brousseau, who for years had led the expedition, took the high-resolution imagery, and, and together we picked an area to do a test excavation because we wanted to see just how accurate the satellite imagery was. And so we picked one very clear building, um, or what looked to be a building in the center of the site. We um, He excavated, and lo and behold, it was exactly, or almost exactly, 
what we thought it was. Um, the imagery didn't pick up two of the house's central rooms. Uh, but since then, since we've gotten better imagery, um, you can actually see those rooms. It just had to do with the, the resolution and quality of the imagery at the time. But it was about 80 to 85% accurate in terms of what it was able to see from 400 miles in space um, and what was buried a meter under the ground. So we thought that was a pretty good result. So what's that like to actually to actually be there and to see these walls and these stones and sometimes these objects that were handled by humans so so long ago? Um, I mean, I I love it. I'm in my I'm I'm at my happiest when I'm excavating and digging. It's such a privilege to uh, to be able to be the the guardian and the caretaker of all of this ancient knowledge um, and recognizing that you're the first person to touch these objects in thousands of years. I mean, it is a huge privilege. Um, people, when they go into the field for the first time, you either love it or you hate it. There's no in between. And I should say, you know, not all archaeologists excavate. You know, some people work in labs, some people process imagery, some people are processing pottery. Everyone who, who does work is an archaeologist. You don't have to, to dig to be one. Um, but, but for me, I love it, and uh, it's just it's just so satisfying. It's almost uh, it's almost like you're meditating when you're digging. It's this very long, slow, arduous process, punctuated by moments of excitement, and you never know when those moments are going to come. You've got this amazing quote. I love archaeology because it gives me insights on what it means to be human. It, it, it seems like you know not only are you tapped into the scientific element of this. But you're also tapped into, you know, the really human side of archaeology and of what you're doing. Yeah, I, I think it's it's really easy for us to to sort of put on put on airs and think we're better than, smarter than, more capable than. Um, you know, I'll just give you a, a more recent example. You know, everyone you read about complaints. Oh, everyone's, you know, on the, on whatever, everyone's looking down at their phones all the time when they're on the train, you can't talk to anyone. Um, gosh, what about the good old days when, when everyone was talking to each other on the train and then you read a quote from, um, a London magazine from the 1880s and it talks about how people are on the train and all they're doing is reading their newspapers and no one's talking to each other. And it's like, what do you, what do you, what did you expect? Did you expect us to change in 140 years? Uh, we're, we're hardwired, um, in ways that have not been changed in thousands and thousands of years. And, you know, I sort of, I had this really interesting conversation recently with, um, Carol Codwaller, who is the, the writer, um, in, in the UK that, um, broke the Cambridge Analytica story. Um, cause she's been writing a lot about, you know, why we have these toxic online relationships. And it's something I've, I've been thinking about as an anthropologist. And I think one of the primary reasons there's so many online toxic interactions is because we're not hardwired for instant gratification and communication. Um, we're used to sitting around campfires and having long, slow conversations and dialogues. Um, you know, all this information coming at us very, very quickly. We react badly. We panic. We are not our best selves. So I think we have to look kind of both in terms of where we've come from and also what all this technology has done to us based on who we are and our common humanity. Um, so yeah, I think we have a lot still to unpack. I think, I think about these things all the time. You do. And you think about saving sites all the time, right? I mean, this is one of the biggest impacts that your technology and your work has had is in 
saving sites, I want to talk a little bit about the threat to vulnerable sites and why it's important that we care about that. Yeah. So um, you know, mo most people listening probably are aware of, of the massive amount of site destruction that's gone on in Syria and Iraq because of ISIL. You know, we see images of them smashing objects in museums, blowing up famous sites. You know, this, this goes back to the Taliban in Afghanistan. <clears throat> Excuse me, when they when they blew up the um, the Bamiyan Buddhas. Uh, so you know these these iconoclasts, these 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 people come in and they want to erase memory. Um, and just for a, a very modern comparison, um, look at what's just happened with an apologies, Lord of the Rings. Oh, not Lord of the Rings. Um, uh, um, hold on, not not enough coffee this morning. Um, Game of Thrones. Uh, no. Game of Thrones. Thank you. Sorry, my brain. Game of Thrones. Spo <laughs> spoiler. Um, with with the with the Night King, right? His he wanted to destroy all memory, which is why he wanted to kill Bran, and that's what people like ISIL and the Taliban do. They destroy memory. They they kill people's connections to places alongside killing people, and that's why saving sites are so it's so important. Uh, it it gives us this long memory. You know, so many cultures around the world are are deeply connected to their histories. You know, indigenous Native North Americans. Um, or you have the Maya. You have groups in Peru. You know, we tend to think of so many groups around the world as lost or disappeared. They're not. They're active. They're living. They're thriving. They're so many indigenous groups in 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 Africa, um, in India, and so many other places. Uh, so it's important. It's important that we maintain these connections to these places because they remind us of what it means to be human and, and all the different ways that we can live and thrive and survive on this planet. Um, and when sites are lost, that connection to the past is severed. Uh, and we're in this place where so many sites around the world are getting destroyed, not just by ISIL, but by urbanization, by deforestation. Um, by the rising waters due to climate change. So if we don't map these sites quickly and get a sense of what's there, um, how can we even know what to protect? So you have to go map it first, and then you need to triage and decide what to save. So I'm hoping with the work that I've been doing with my team um, and the work that my colleagues are doing, we're helping to raise awareness and make people realize that this is really, really important. Tell me a story about a site that you saved. So the site where we're working um, at Lish dates to about 3,800 years ago. It was Egypt's Middle Kingdom capital. And uh, I'd always wanted to work there. I work at a mission jointly with Egypt's Ministry of Antiquities. Um, and in working at this part of the site, we've built uh, guard huts. We have put in a lighting system. We work very closely with the local villagers. So I, I, I think we've helped to reduce looting pretty significantly um, at the site and certainly in the area that we that we work. So it's it, it takes a village. It literally takes a village and it takes very active engagement with communities that are living on to or next to sites. So it's not just identifying that there's looting going on, but it's developing a concrete on the ground action plan. And it can work. It can work when you work together with the people that are living on to or next, these, next to these sites. I was really touched by um, the story that you told about working with some of the, you know, the diggers that you hire um, to help you excavate. And then they confessed, you know, they had been part of the looting, but that they hadn't known how important this stuff was, that it was part of their heritage. 
and that you you believe that sort of in improving their world you know with education and playgrounds and picnic areas that Im improving the present can help preserve the past that that's right um, i think you know i think i think for so long archaeologists and still still do there there's so many colonialist mentalities you know, colonialism is pervasive in in archaeology it's a really nasty and harsh truth that my field has to start confronting both the past and also the way that it affects the field now. And, you know, we, we work in the field primarily in the West, you know, a couple months a year if we're lucky, but it's the indigenous archaeologists, it's the people who live next to these sites or the ministries that are the, 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 the real guardians of these places. And we, we come in with fancy tools and a lot of money and we excavate and we take and we take and we take and so few people are giving. I mean, that's, that's changing with a new generation of archaeologists, but I think it's, it's incumbent upon us to really think through how we can give back even more, um, and incorporate community archaeology. Um, into the work that we're doing, because by engaging with local school groups, by working with kids, by working with villagers, um, really amazing things happen. Um, and, and ultimately, they're the people that are living next to these sites 365 days a year. So if you develop close working relationships with the villages um, or towns where these sites are, um, you're guaranteeing, no, I mean, you can never guarantee 100%, but you're really guaranteeing that your site is likely going to be protected um, long term because you've, it starts with relationships. Well, and on this most profound note that archaeology needs to be for everyone, um, tell me about the TED Prize and the organization you started with that money. So, yes, so I was very lucky in 2016 to receive uh, the TED Prize. Now it's the Audacious Project. It's it's evolved. But at the time, um, you receive a million dollars. One would receive a million dollars, and you get to make a big wish on the TED stage. Unless any of your listeners think that that I am, I am now rich with a million dollars, it's to do a specific project. It's project funding. It's not for, for you personally. Um, and my wish was to create something that would allow the world to help map and protect its shared cultural heritage for future generations. So I set up an organization called Global Explorer. Um, so our organization focuses on developing innovative technologies that allow the world uh, to help map and protect archaeological sites. And our first big project was a citizen science online platform, which you can reach at globalexplorer.org. Uh, and it allows anyone in the world to look at satellite imagery and help map and find archaeological sites. And when we launched the platform, we had this huge vision of bringing in people from around the world and looking at images and, and, and having them find sites. But to be perfectly honest, I didn't know how many people we'd get. I didn't know if it would work. I didn't know if they would actually find sites. And more importantly, I didn't know if the information the crowd found could be given to archaeologists on the ground to then take out and actually make discoveries. So it was a huge risk. But I'm very proud to share that after um, over two years, we've had, oh, I think we're up to 86,000 participants from nearly every country in the world. Um, I think we're missing like Greenland and North Korea and a couple other places. Um, so, you know, we've had people from everywhere and the crowd has found um, 
close to 20,000 potential archaeological sites, and over 700 of them have been confirmed to be very large sites by specialists in, in Peru. We launched in Peru. Um, and even more exciting, uh, we collaborated with a team of archaeologists that took data um, that the crowd found in the Nazca region, and it helped them to find uh, over 50 new Nazca lines, those beautiful animals and shapes and figures that are carved into the landscape. Um, so this idea that the crowd collects the data, but it then can be used by local archaeological organizations, entities, professionals, ministries, um, to then do what they do best on the ground, um, to me is super exciting. Because for us, you know, we're, uh, we see ourselves as a resource. We're not a solution. We're just, we're, we, we assist the people on the ground that are already really, really good at what they do, and we're just providing them more tools. So the idea is post-Peru, we're going to India. Uh, we're collaborating closely with the government of India, with the Ministry of Culture, the Archaeological Survey of India, and the um, and a group called the Tata Trusts. Uh, and the idea is that we'll, over the next couple of years, map all of uh, all of the surface archaeological sites in India and, and get as many people as possible, especially kids in India, helping to, to retell their story. Can you tell me about Doris? Oh, yes. So, yes. Yeah. So, so Doris May Jones may be one of my favorite humans ever. So when we built the platform, you know, we, we said at the time it was for everyone between five and 105. You know, we wanted the platform to be accessible for everyone, regardless of, of ability, background, knowledge. We wanted the the millennial on three devices to find it cool. And we wanted the sort of retired stay at home grandmother to find it accessible. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm a big uh, believer in, um, in providing tools and technologies literally for everyone, regardless of, of ability or backgrounds for people who have disabilities. I wanted them to be able to use it. Really. I just wanted to, I wanted to create this very welcoming place. Um, so, so Doris, is 92 years old. She uh, is is disabled. She is in Cleveland, Ohio. And Doris ended up being one of our super users. So she's looked at tens of thousands of archaeological tiles. She's this bright spark in the universe. Uh, and, and when we talked to her about using the platform, she said she felt like she was part of this much bigger community. She said, you know, in spite of the fact that I, you know, I've got a lot of difficulty leaving home, it's hard for me to get out and explore like I used to. You know, I feel like I'm making a real contribution to the world, and she is. So to me, when, when I learned that, that Doris and others like her were, were using the platform, I thought, you know, we've, we've done something right. I just absolutely love that. I mean, what does it feel like to be a bridge? You know, you're connecting the past to the future and the ground to the sky and kind of standing in the gap between, you know, this is a very critical time. And I believe I read your goal is to map the entire world in the next 10 years? Yeah, I mean, it may, it, it may be completely audacious to say something like that. You know, it may take us longer, but why not? You know, with machine learning, with advances in technology, with all these partnerships that we're, we're working on, who knows? Who knows what we'll be able to, to do? I think it's good to have bold goals. You know, I think I, I, I kind of go, goes back to what I said at the beginning of this interview. You know, I've been so lucky throughout my career with the people that I've met, with the opportunities that I've had. And I think, um, you know, scientists who have a lot of privilege as I've had going through and, and having these opportunities, I think it's incumbent upon us to give back. 
Um, you know, there's so many people in the world who don't get these opportunities and you know, talent is, is boundless and infinite and opportunity is, is not. Um, and I want, you know, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of, of kids around the world, whether you're in a, you know, in Bangladesh or Albuquerque, New Mexico or, or Shanghai or Greenland, it doesn't matter to me. I want, I want kids everywhere to have the opportunities that I had to explore, to, to discover the past. And I want to provide these opportunities to as many people as, as I can. I think we are in this race against time. Um, archaeologists can't do it by themselves. You know, so many government ministries around the world are struggling with funding and support. Um, so we need the eyes of the world on these sites to help empower archaeologists and heritage people and, and governments to do their jobs better. So, yeah, I think it's it, a lot of it is giving back. A lot of it is recognizing my privilege and, and doing trying to do more, trying to engage more. And also, I think kind of looking at where we are in 2019 um, and without getting super political, speaking generally, you know, we're in a place now where there's a been a huge rise in white nationalism and hate groups uh, and, and, and pro-Nazi groups in, um, or neo-Nazi groups in, in Europe and the U.S. And one of the reasons you have this huge rise is, is ignorance. It's a lack of understanding and compassion and empathy. And I think when you connect with people across borders, across cultures, when you encounter the past, when you see how little we've changed, um, when you have these moments where you're like, oh my gosh, I did tell mother-in-law jokes 3,000 years ago. It just, it opens your heart a bit and it allows you to see others um, as connected to you rather than different from you. Uh, and I think we need a gigantic empathy machine right now. Um, you know, that's the message that I preach wherever I go, wherever I speak. Um, and so many white nationalists and neo-Nazi groups have taken symbols and ideas from from the Vikings, from um, this whitewashed classical world that doesn't exist. And I think it's we, we, we archaeologists have to do more to, to fight back. So the idea that the past was diverse and rich and, and is full of wonder and creativity, uh, I, you know, I hope people who engage with our site, I hope people who learn about archaeology maybe do carry forth that empathy with them as, as they go about their, their, their business today. And I hope it can make a difference. We certainly need more, more empathy. The last book I wrote was a textbook. I never thought that I would write a book like this. Um, and I just, I, I wanted to share my story and my love of the past with the world. Um, I wanted to show um, why the past is important. I wanted to show all that it can teach us. Um, you know, we are uh, facing right now, you know, with with all these migrants coming into the U.S. with so much instability in the Middle East and elsewhere, the majority of this has to do with climate change. I mean, a lot of people don't know that the Arab Spring was started because of climate change in Syria. That's what kicked it off. And so we're going to see a lot more global destabilization from climate change and and by looking at the past, by looking at all these different civilizations that in some cases managed to survive and other cases didn't, um, huge tumultuous periods of time because of climate change, we have so much to learn from the past. 
Um, and that's why I wrote the book. I wanted people to understand why, what the past can teach us so that maybe we've got a shot at, at existing or at least uh, doing a better job of existing today. I think the most beautiful part about your work to me personally is this idea of empowering the everyday person, the citizen scientist, you know, empowering us to help because one does feel like you need a degree and you need to go to Yale and you need to, you know, you have to have had made this choice when you were seven. And now that in, if you haven't, you can't jump in, you can't help. And that's a terrible feeling because I think my, in my experience, most people do want to help. And this is a way, this is a way that people can get involved. This is a way that people can jump in. I think the reason we're seeing this rise in belief in aliens, you know, we've had I think it's one out of three people now believe that aliens built the pyramids. It's, it's bonkers. Um, and, and you look at these alien shows and I watch them because I want to know what I'm, I'm up against. And the primary message by so many of these people on TV or people that are writing books that are pseudo-archaeological is archaeologists are hiding all this information from you. There's a secret cabal of archaeologists and they're hiding knowledge and all of them know and they don't like you and so let me show you the truth. It couldn't be farther from the truth. You know, we, 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 are, we are blogging, we are having live video feeds from our archaeological digs, we're tweeting, we're Facebook living. We couldn't be shouting louder from the rooftops. Um, and this idea that we can engage people and pull them in, and I, so many, I'm not the only one doing this by a long shot. Hundreds of my colleagues are doing outreach. You know, they're they're doing digs with kids. They're going to elder care facilities. They're um, they have crowdsourcing platforms too. Um, the idea that we can engage people and and get them to understand that they too can contribute to the past and they have important things to 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 share. Um, you know, I, I hope it leads to this reversal in public belief um, that that we don't have this great creativity and capacity to do good, because um, ultimately that's what believing in aliens um, is. You know, aside from being super racist, um, you know, this idea that we we didn't have the ability to build these amazing structures and places. Um, you know, the same, you know, it's the same, the same brilliant mind that built the iPhone that I'm on right now, Mr. Jobs, um, you know, four and a half thousand years ago, that was Imhotep who built the step pyramid at, at Saqqara. So this idea that creativity and brilliance, um, you know, are, are there alongside our, our hu very human um, capacity for, for evil and sort of outweighs it 51 to 49%. Um, you know, this idea that we can, we can give the world some hope, um, by shining a light on, on who we were and who we are and who we could be. And that to me makes me very proud. And I, and that's something I'll be doing for the rest of my life. Any plans to point to the lens at other planets, at other surfaces? Is that something you've ever considered? Oh, constantly, you know, um, I, uh, I wonder, um, why, first of all, um, you know, that to be a na an astronaut at NASA, you have to have a bachelor of science. They don't consider anthropology. They, they've never considered an anthropologist or archaeologist to be an astronaut. And I think that's a huge mistake. Um, you know, when we go, in fact, I talk about this in one of my, one of my chapters. I have a whole chapter on the archaeology of 2119. Um, and the whole, point, right? I don't want to ruin the, the chapter for, for potential readers, but basically, 
you know, one of the reasons we're doing archaeology in a hundred years is to get us ready to explore and find civilizations in other worlds. Um, so you have to think, okay, you go up in space with a, you know, I don't know, think about, um, who, who might go on an expedition to another planet, you know, a biologist, a chemist, a geologist. None of them have been trained to find, um, evidence or even ephemeral evidence of a completely unknown civilization. And that's who we are. That's what we do. We, we can create and tell stories about civilizations from very, very little, even, even civilizations and, and, um, cultures that have almost nothing to do with, with us today. Um, so we understand those frameworks. We understand there's a whole, uh, science to doing and recreating how, a, how another civilization might have lived. So yeah, sign me up. Um, I'm ready. Um, if, if, uh, if, if Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk are listening right now, I'm available. Um, I joke, but that it's the, it's the truth. How, how are any astronauts right now qualified to find life on other planets? And I don't mean tiny multicellular life. I'm talking about civilizations. They're not. That's what we do. So yeah, so I think, I think the whole science is primed. I think that's the, hopefully what, you know, one of the reasons I wrote the book. Or at least that part of the book is to open people's minds to the idea that archaeologists are just as important in terms of mapping life on other planets as the chemists and biologists and physicists and geologists. Well, I have to That's confess not- something to you too. So I'm I'm an author. I've written about five books, and I just won um, best new kids book uh, from the Independent what? Publishing Awards. I know, and my book is about. Thank you. But my book is about kids that time travel back to ancient Egypt and who no. look for the lost city of Ophir. Yes. No, no. Who look for Moreau. Yes. I'm going to send you a copy. I mean, it's for kids. It's for, but you're, you know, your, your kids, your son, your son might like it. Um, He's, he I wrote it with seven, Andrew Zimmer. Probably... Yeah, no, this is wait, perfect you... for him. So it's. Wait, 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 you. Wait, 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 hold on, wait, wait, you, wait a minute, I know, I, I don't, I don't own this book, I was actually going to order it, because I've seen Andrew yeah. tweeting about it, okay, I'm so gonna fangirl for a second, oh my gosh, that was you, holy smokes, that was smokes. me, I'm H.E. Magalhead, what? yeah, sorry, you've, you have just blown my mind, he's obsessed with Egypt, he's been three times, he is the luckiest six-year-old boy in the entire world, he has strong opinions already on specific sites and specific kings, uh, a beautiful world is a place where everyone has the the opportunity to live to their full potential as humans, uh, while respecting the uh, the differences and unique abilities of others, and finding ways to honor, respect, and celebrate those differences in ways that um, uh, in, in ways that show um, that well, I have to reframe this. Um, hold on. Sorry. Um, no problem. Take your time. Yeah. It's, it's, it's way, it way, it's ways that, um, uh, that honor and respect everyone's differences in such a way that would make aliens from other planets want to spend time with us. That was Sarah Parkak talking about her new book, Archaeology from Space, How the Future Shapes Our Past. 
I'm Heather McElhatton, and this is A Beautiful World. You can find more stories online on our story bank at abeautiful.world. <laughs>